the Cybersecurity and Compliance Podcast with Craig Petronella. Learn about the most current IT security threats in ransomware, phishing, business email compromise, cybercrime tactics, cyber heist schemes, social engineering scams, as well as hints and tips from leading professionals to help you prevent hackers from penetrating your network and dropping ransomware or malware payloads. This podcast will arm you with the best info to defend your network against the latest cyber crimes. Don't forget to like and subscribe. And now, here's your host, Craig Petronella. No recording, so I won't give details, but isn't it so refreshing to talk to a company and a, a staff group from a company that is being so responsible about their cyber hygiene? <laughs> like, it's so refreshing. It is refreshing. It's, They've been such a great client to work with. They have been, and they're always willing to, even though it's not fun, it's not cheap, they're always willing to take the next right step towards yeah. cybersecurity. And it's a heavy burden, but they're right where they should be as far as their mindset. And when I think about the current trends in ransomware threats, I think they're really doing a good job to keep all those threats minimized. Yeah, I think he had more devices on his network than I do. Not more than you, though, BJ. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting up there. <laughs> now you got I eyeglasses get, on the um, network. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. And look, don't even get me started on my eyeglasses because I'm wearing them right now, but I can't see very well out of them. I, I was wearing double homemade bifocals all day because I have my prescription lenses on my eyes and then my Alexa frames over them. <laughs> so that I can see. <laughs> but because, again, this is the third time I've tried to get to the eye doctor to get my prescription for, to fill my Alexa echo frame. And again, we got snowed in right before my doctor's appointment. Oh, and I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> one day I'm going to get these. <laughs> but yeah, I had to get double, you know how you can get smart plugs, smart outlets, yeah. that then you can turn anything into a smart. I had to double outlet smart plugs just so I've turned every outlet into two. <laughs> oh my gosh. Got a mad scientist lab over there. <laughs> yeah, but it's so fun. <laughs> Frankenstein fun said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know what makes it so fun is if you're paying attention, you can see the progression steadily on a regular basis. Every day I feel like, oh, wow, this must be the pinnacle right here. I must have seen it all as of and then something will happen and I'll be like, what the heck? How did that happen? I think what we should talk about today is how certain companies, where they're made in the world and how I was telling Aaron earlier with the Veeam software. Veeam software is a data backup, disaster recovery software that's for VMware and other types of virtual environments. Uh, anyway, I learned this morning it originated in Russia. VMware? Not VMware, Veeam. It's called Veeam. Oh, okay. And the Veeam software originated and was coded in Russia. And I was just doing some Google searches after I read it because I just couldn't believe it. I found out that it was two years ago in 2020 that they sold off company for $5 billion to an investor because they were having problems. Uh, speculate when I say this because I didn't do enough research, so I'm not going to speak out of line. But from what I've read, it sounded like they were having some pressures around the origination of the software being Russian and selling it into defense and other environments for, for odd reasons, right? I'm sure you've heard of Kaspersky antivirus is a similar situation where they were, you know, oh, the boy. antivirus software is Russian and people, especially in America, have concerns over that software being on their computers. And in my opinion, yeah, I would have concerns over it too. So my point, though, is that with the Veeam software... You uncovered something similar like that years ago, Craig. Do you remember when we were working with that company out of the Royal Holloway University in London? And then you were looking into, I think it was Tether. Like, I don't know. 
Yeah. But anyway, you found another connection like that and you kind of backed off from pursuing it for our oh, clients. I do remember that, that. Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, that was really scary. This seems to be from everything that's being said now that Russia has some plan in place for internet because they're literally a lot of play going dark on them, but it seems like Russia's not really concerned about that because they seem to be pulling the plug on the global internet themselves and they're doing some Russia deal like for internet. Like they're actually unplugging themselves. They made an announcement that basically all servers, domains, whatever had to be off of the global internet within a week or something like that. And they were doing their own Russian internet. Wow. Well, when I learned about this thing earlier, I was talking to Aaron about it for a little while. The part that was kind of alarming is that there's a lot of companies that don't even realize this. I was familiar with the software, but I didn't realize of its origins. And it brings it back to what I've said for many years around, you have to know where the software is being made and who's maintaining it on both your mobile devices, your iPhones, your droids, as well as your computers, because any one of those pieces of software could be spying on you and exfiltrating information out of your device without even you knowing. And if you don't have technology to detect that, like XR can like sense the connection back and, and track it and lock it, you would never know. Wow, that's so interesting. That's such an interesting point because as we just were talking uh, yesterday, I made a video, you know, trend in, in rant. Like, it's funny because I got used to looking at crypto stock markets, you know, and looking at trend lines and stuff. And that was the first I've ever really looked into that. But now it's like, <laughs> I kind of do the same on the ransomware yep. chart. You could see a trend. It's clear as day. It's a reversal. There is an absolute reversal taking place. It's like the old ways of ransomware attack are absolutely on the decline, a sharp decline. And then you have the new forms of ransomware attack, which is mostly centered around exploitation of software vulnerabilities, just as you're describing right now. It's on a sharp uptrend. And they're literally doing a crisscross like it's a reverse and there, there's no human way to keep on top of that you have to have an xdr solution when you look at the trend lines on the ransomware trends i feel like there's literally no debate to the fact that you have to have an xdr type of tool well, there's just no way around it yeah you, you do at yeah. the network layer anyway but you have to have other layers too and the importance of those other layers because if you're on a mobile device, for example, right now, there's not a XDR type solution. It's being developed, but it's not available right now. So the best thing that people could do is make sure that they really scrutinize every application. And a lot of these things, the scary fact, I don't know if you remember BJ, but he had published a bunch of app years ago for some magazines that I wrote and edited. I did some research then and found out that millions and millions of apps are obtaining malicious software. I get past the screenings of Google and Apple. And they're on the store right now. Yeah. And they're mostly masked as games for kids. Parents <sighs> give their phone or their device to their kids to kind of defy them for a little while. Right? Right. I have no idea that game could be recording the video or these different bad things, the sound. Like it's, it's kind of not fair for people because it's almost when you really look at it, fact, no fluff, no BS, just absolute facts. It's the pictures emerging that you really got to pay very close attention to everything related to cybersecurity or you're in deep water. Kind of not fair that it's such a burden. But again, that's where even if you were paying attention to the apps and the coding in the apps and all that, still, there's no way 
there's no way to keep an eye on every possible vulnerability in every possible piece of software on every app that you use. So again, those are things that an XDR tool can help with because the XDR tool, even though it's not part of the app or the software, it can inspect every data packet and it can see when something's suspicious or out of character for the network. That's a good point, but some things everybody could do, it's isolation, network isolation. So some of the new wireless routers, for example, or wireless transmitters that are Wi-Fi 6 and some of the more enterprise companies will support multiple wireless networks. You could actually set them up so that they'll segment each device so it can't communicate laterally on the network and it only can go out. And the reason why people should have more than one wireless network at their house or their office is because if you've got a device like a picture frame or something that was made in an adversarial country and it's spying want to make sure that it's not able to get at your data of your laptop or something that might have more sensitive information. Obviously, it's not going to stop the device from the camera or something from sending it straight out to the internet. However, if you can segment it and separate the network so that the device can't spread ransomware or do data exfiltration out by connecting to other things on the network, at least you kind of isolate it a little bit. So yeah, for scrutinizing what you have in your home or your office and what you put on the internet, because frankly, everything does not need to be connected to the internet. The point is that isolation is a free, often free configuration type setting that most people could take advantage of that will help increase their security and it's no extra cost for most people. That's a good point. Now, help me to wrap my head around this so that I understand it. Let's just say worst case scenario, if someone didn't do that, someone didn't isolate their networks and all that. Or say they even did. And I read an article yesterday about some of the more sophisticated hacking groups. They're not even raising red flags because they're actually breaching software at the level before it's even dispersed. And you get something and it's from a reputable vendor. It could even be from a vendor in the United States. We saw with the livestock hack recently, that app that states use to track their livestock to look for diseases in the livestock that gets into the meat supply. 18 states use the same livestock tracking software and the software is made in the United States. I can't remember what it's called. But anyway, so that software was breached by sophisticated hackers. And so these states, 18 states that were using the software, they were using from a United States vendor. Everything looked good, everything checked out, but the software itself was contaminated. So in a situation like that, where someone's done their due diligence, they've looked into where the vendors located, everything looks legit, but still it was infected unbeknownst to them. Wouldn't an XDR still, when it's sniffing data packets in the network, notice something irregular when they were trying to extricate is that the right word? The information, wouldn't it still pick up on something odd happening? Yeah, exfiltration. Yes, it would show the connection of where it originates. So here in the United States, and then it would show connections to China or wherever. And you would see that logged activity timestamp and the activity and what it was doing and all that stuff. So yes, that's how you would detect if a device on your network is sending data out that you wouldn't normally be able to detect. Yeah. So that's the point I'm trying to connect in my own mind. So it seems like, and I know there's no silver bullet for everything, obviously, because this is a problem that has a bazillion entry points. So with that being said, though, but it seems like, again, the XDR is an excellent tool because even when things look legit and you've done your homework, you could still be a victim of a solar winds type thing. And XDR still adds that extra layer because it's going to notice when something is happening that doesn't fit with the picture. 
yeah, when the XDR sensor is on the network and you're part of that network, absolutely, that'll protect you. But this is also why I wanted to bring up what's called code review. It's because, like you said, the software was made in the United States. It doesn't mean that they went through a third-party code review process of having an outside company look at each line of code to make sure there wasn't something malicious in the code. I think that a lot of companies are missing that point. That will really highlight and illustrate where some of the back doors are entered. That's an exhaustive process, the code review. You have to find programmers that know the language of whatever the software was written in. And then they have, depending on how many lines of code it is, will depend on how much manpower we needed to cut through all that with a fine-tooth comb. But that is a audit process that we highly recommend, uh, especially companies that are dealing with sensitive information go through. Or government entities mm-hmm. that are using uh, what what the flaw was with this livestock tracking app, which is dairy, because now 18 state governments have been breached. To what degree, we don't yet know, right? But they have used infected software at the state level. 18 states have. So with that being said, the the flaw was on the vendor side, they used encryption in the app to protect the data sent back and forth between states and the server and whatever. The decryption keys were supposed to be private keys specific to each transaction, Mm -hmm. I guess. But there was an error in the coding and the decryption keys were actually stored on the actual servers and they were reused over and over again. Right. And so the hackers got into the decryption key at one location and then were able to then spread through the 18 states. Really good question. Why in the world are states and governments, why are they not using something like XDR? Do they just not know? That's a good question, Aaron. That's a really good question because the question I've asked many times is why is the DOD not using it for all 300,000 vendors? But Aaron takes the question even a step further. Why are the actual governments not using well, the I'll, XDR I'll tell you the tool. answer to that is because most of them have tunnel vision. So they have IT staff or limited staff. They're head down, putting out fires every day, and they're not able to keep up uh, with all the new stuff that comes out. XDR is a fairly new technology, different flavors of it. It's been patented. But obviously the one that we use and recommend is also has a 24-7 staffed cybersecurity SOC. That component that a lot of the big players do not have, that's an essential component to make work because all these people are overwhelmed. And I don't think that the DOD would ever pay for XDR for all of the DIB because it's probably out of scope. However, there could be rebates or some incentives maybe that are developed. I was mentioning to Aaron the other day, cybersecurity scorecard, kind of like credit score. Better cyber hygiene you have and we vet you, we test you and we give you a score, A, B, C, D or an F failing, that score should give you arcs kind of yeah. on your credit. Me personally, if I was running the government, I would at this point make an announcement and be like, hey, if you're doing business with the government, it's critical that you get an XDR tool right away. And then I would give a very short period of time because it doesn't take that long to implement it. And I would say as of this date, if you do not have an XDR tool in your network, I will have to close the door to doing business with you until that changes because you're a risk to everyone. Again, it's politics and decisions. I forget the gentleman that said this, but it was somebody either in the DOD or some layer of the government, but he was basically talking about how CMMC isn't signed yet. And in so many words, what he was basically telling the dip to do was basically wait on the sidelines 
And it's like, what? No. The legal loophole game, because it's not technically law yet. So you don't have to technically do anything. (laughs) But that's the kind of behavior that we need to eliminate because we need people to be bold and we need people to be like, look, you have to do this stuff. You have to put these layers in place. They are not that expensive. Right. Give a priceless result. They're eye-opening. I'm kind of when firewalls first came out, everybody seemed to buy a firewall when everybody uses antivirus, but those are no longer enough to protect you from these latest threats. And And those can't even be blindly trusted. We recently saw a few examples of why that's the case. The reason I keep saying XDR tools and probably will for a very long time is that it's it's new technology, like you said, but it seems like it's not a perfect catch-all, but it seems like it's a wonderful blanket to put on top of everything just to sniff around for anomalies, for things that don't add up, because that's where you're going to find the action. Correct. Yep. At the network layer, most people don't have the visibility into what's happening on their network. They blindly trust, oh, I can get to the internet. They don't even think about it. Or they think that someone else is making sure that all these things, that's another problem too. I like that you use the word bold. You said that it requires to be bold and kind of see that as directly conflicting the red tape, big, huge machine that has no ability to act in a very agile or mobile fashion. So with all that red tape, it weighs you down. So they can't make quick, decisive, do this ASAP because there's too much red tape and politics involved. But truly to win this, someone has to say, hey, this is the right way to do it. And we got to do it now. You know, there's no time for nine months of politics. I feel like the, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, I feel like NIST has done a fantastic job in creating a great framework for people to follow and, and what to do. I think the confusion that happens into their everyday business and homes. So I think they get lost and that's where they need somebody like us to help them walk through and be that Sherpa. Just teach yeah. them, look, this is what this means. This is why you need to do it. This is why it's important. Like I just heard yeah. the other day from one of my attorneys that I'm connected with, and she was telling me how in the background, <laughs> the <laughs> computer fraud, I forget the the bill, the computer fraud bill, like for cybercrime in the background is being overhauled. And there's new rules and regulations that are being drafted behind the scenes that a lot of people don't know about that will be affecting a lot of other people and businesses. If you saw the DOJ or Department of Justice, they found the ransomware creator of the R Evil gang. Did you see that? I didn't see yeah, that. Yeah, so they brought him back. He was actually from Ukraine, but endorsed by Russia. And they brought him back to the United States to put trial. But yeah, he was the one that did the R Evil ransomware. And one of the ways that ransomware gang was infecting victims was through the firmware, an outdated firmware of their firewall. So you talk about trusting vendors, right? So you're trusting that the brand making model of the firewall you bought that's connecting you to the internet and supposed to be protecting you, you're trusting that brand to protect you. And in this case, they were the ones that had the door open somewhere into your network. Like solar winds. It's exactly the same concept. Yeah, same concept. But this is why it's so important for not just consumers, businesses, but also IT providers and managed service providers. This is why it's so important that as the advisors to the company, if if it's an IT company or a managed service provider, you need to be vetting and testing everything and make sure that these vendors are putting their feet to the fire. Proof does this vendor have to make sure that you can trust them? Kind of seems like the mood of the times right now is that people need to open their eyes and they need to realize they need to stop being an autopilot and they need to stop blindly trusting and they need to realize that they need to take their own security into their own hands. 
and be very vigilant is, about it because look, you cannot just assume that the government has it under control. 18 states just got breached. <laughs> but this is where like, a perfect segue into zero trust. And this is where people listening might have heard of zero trust, but zero trust really helps with that problem. So you don't have to centrally trust that one vendor. You rely on zero trust technology, like end-to-end encryption and things like that, that are outside the scope or control of the vendor. So if the vendor were breached, Mm -hmm. you're not holding the bag. So that's why zero trust is so powerful. We used to make so many assumptions. And I guess the old cliche about assumptions is true because some of these assumptions are just downright getting dangerous, but that things are, you can assume that they're safe. It seems like a lot of the more sophisticated hackers are starting to be much more active now. There's a lot of activity of a higher caliber at this time. Like we saw in the news just in the last 24 hours that a whole bunch, it's not just one, it's a whole bunch of whale wallets, like large holders of Bitcoin from the Satoshi era. So from the first group that mined Bitcoin, the very early pioneers of Bitcoin that Mm -hmm. have a ton of Bitcoin and they got it when it was dirt cheap, they're actually becoming active now. And you could speculate as to why that is. Is it because the regulation was just signed and people are worried that assets are going to be seized because a whole bunch of Bitcoin left the Coinbase exchange by these old Satoshi era whales. They're taking their crypto to anonymous wallets instead of leaving it on exchanges. And ironically, I just logged into Coinbase this morning and I got prompted as soon as I logged in, I had a prompt pop up about getting my own custodial Coinbase wallet and keeping my own private keys. So I'm like, you know, you have a lot of high caliber activity right now. You have these huge Bitcoin whales that are for the first time in like 11 years, moving their Bitcoin. And then you have these high level hackers that are emerging that seem to be very sophisticated and use a more polished approach. <laughs> Look at what's happening with Kraken. That's a perfect segue to Kraken. The CEO of Kraken was getting pressure to basically freeze Russians' crypto. Uh, and yeah. he said, well, freeze the Russians' crypto, then I need to freeze the United States and everybody else's crypto because it's supposed to be decentralized, right? While he has a good point, and while we're definitely not in favor of what the Russians are doing, the point is, though, it goes back to the risks of storing your assets on an exchange. If they're pressured or some bill gets signed where Kraken then has to do something like that to prohibit. Right. Well, now those locked up, their funds are frozen, right? Again, I'm not advocating that. I'm just saying, though, that for anyone, wherever you live in the world, the safest place to store your crypto is in a cold wallet, you know, or multiple cold wallets. And you can absolutely protect that secret phrase. But this is a perfect segue also with B note here. I don't know if you've seen this. This is our trademark that we got the award for blockchain security. Oh, yeah. On the patent office now. So that's another awesome win. That's just proof right there. That's a piece of evidence that you're holding in your hands that early adapters, if you're first on the scene and you can be somewhere early on the cutting edge of things, you're usually going to reap some type of a reward. I remember, I'll never forget the day you called me. I was in a parking lot. I had an appointment or something. I was in a parking lot and you called. This was years ago. And you said, hey, do you think I should buy this domain? It was like, I don't remember, a couple thousand dollars or something. You said, do you think I should buy it? Blockchainsecurity.com. And I was like, yeah, I totally think you should. And I'll, I'll never forget it. It was just a very important moment because I remember exactly where I was at the time. Yep. And it was brand new. Nobody was really talking about blockchain at that time. It was still very obscure and stuff. But because you were on the cutting edge and forward thinking and stuff, you got that domain. And I would venture to say that that's going to be something that people really try to buy from you in the future. <laughs> you saw such a great need that blockchain being mostly decentralized, especially uh, public and private blockchains, of course, but mostly blockchain is decentralized, so uh, here by default. However, 
there are still coding problems. And you see the headlines of misconfigured, miscoded smart contracts, loss of millions of dollars because they didn't go through that code review. So there's still security, blockchain security services that are needed. They're not much needed now, but that's going to be such an essential pillar for the future. Yeah. And then also just people's personal network and computers that they use to operate on the blockchain, because still, once you get an infection, it can spiral. Yep. It can fighter. Exactly. Blake, how are you today? Hey, good guys. Sorry for coming in a little late. Yeah, no worries. No worries. Do you want to cut it here or do you want to keep going? Gosh, BJ's killing it. I don't even have any breath <laughs> to anything. And on that note, let me, since you're here too, Blake, I feel like that's a sign that I can ask my question. I have two techies on the phone and me and Aaron, Aaron's great at asking questions and I'm great at paying attention. So I would like you guys to, maybe you don't have an answer pop out at you now, but I would just like to ask a question and see if maybe you can contemplate it for a while and see if anything comes to you because I truly cannot understand how this is possible. So as you guys know, I have a passion for AI and smart devices because that's obviously a pathway for AI. And so I have this little, as Craig calls it, a math scientist lab in my home. I've done a pretty good job of networking all my stuff together. I have a little Google Mesh Wi-Fi and all this. I have lots of smart devices, right? My passion. Well, I got the Echo Show 15. That's a, an Alexa device when it came out. It's hanging on the wall across the room now. Now I have a Google Hub Max, which is the second generation Google Hub. And it's got, again, the machine vision, just like the Echo Show. And they're facing each other. So this morning, I'm sitting here, my little toddler, my two-year-old, he sleeps next to me. And we're awake and I'm reading through the news. I'm on my phone. We haven't left our bedroom yet. So it's all quiet in the kitchen. And I'm reading the news. And all of a sudden, I get a notification pop up on my phone from Google Nest, which is the app, because Google's all segmented all over the place. But Google Nest is the app that has the Nest Cam. The Nest Cam is what's the vision part of the Google Hub Max. So I get a notification saying that there was sound detected because it has motion and sound detection in the camera. And it says there was sound detected in my kitchen and it, and it showed me a video clip. And I was like, well, what's that? Because there shouldn't be anything because I didn't hear anything. And I was just sitting here talking to my two-year-old. So I, I pull up the video clip and I look at it and it's loud as heck and clear as day. My voice and my toddler talking out of the Google Hub Max. So loud was it that it woke Alexa up across the room. You could see her turn on because she heard my voice and the baby's voice talking from the Google Hub Max somehow. But we weren't even on a device. We were talking in the bedroom. <laughs> and all of a sudden that device started transmitting our voices out loud and Alexa heard it from the Echo Show. She turned on and she's listening because she doesn't know what's going on. And you can see her just sit there for a minute and then turn back off. And the whole thing was on camera. And I'm like, how did that happen? And then we're standing in the room. So I have a Google Wi-Fi. I have my AT&T fiber optic internet. And then I have a Google Wi-Fi system. So I have a, a Google Wi-Fi router that's in the kitchen. And then I have a Google Wi-Fi point that's in the bedroom with me. And I also have a Google Nest audio speaker and an Alexa speaker in the bedroom. I had the Google Wi-Fi point sitting next to the Alexa speaker overnight. And after that happened, where the notification came through with the video clip, after that happened, I could then hear the same audio playing through this Alexa speaker in the bedroom. I'm like, how is this all happening? Somehow, I guess I should maybe need to do some research on how Bluetooth works, because I guess I don't really understand it that well. But somehow this audio of us speaking out loud in this one room was transmitted live to the Nest Hub Max out loud. And it triggered the motion and sound detection on that device. Alexa heard it. And then it was transmitted through another Alexa device where my baby's looking at the Alexa speaker. He's all confused. He's like, cause he hears his voice coming out of it. 
And he's just looking around like, what's going on? I have no idea how any of that happened. The only thing I could think of is maybe it triggered what's called a triggered event. It maybe thought something happened. And then at that moment in time, it recorded from all your devices, wherever they are in the house. And then it played that back to you. That's the only thing I can think of. Yeah, something like that, right? Something happened. These devices I'm watching, right? They're all learning from each other because they're, okay, here, oh, and here's another one. Right after that, okay, I have a Nest Protect, which is a smoke and carbon monoxide detector. It's in the kitchen. It's also part of the Nest app. So the Google Nest app has the Nest Protect and the Google Hub Max, which is the Nest Cam in that display. So I went to the kitchen. I have candles and sometimes I'll light an incense stick. I just like the, the ambiance of candles and stuff. So I light an incense stick. And I know from experience that sometimes if you leave the incense stick actively burning too long before you blow the flame out, it does put off a little bit of CO2 because it has set off an alarm before if I had it like real close to it. So anyway, this morning I light a stick and it's on for a few seconds because uh, my baby likes to blow them out. So I let him blow them out because I try to teach him how to be safe with flames and stuff. So he, he's blowing it out. No alarm sounded, no, not a peep. I was right there. Nothing peeped. And then all of a sudden I get a notification from a speaker, not the Nest Protect, that's the smoke detector, but a speaker, a, a Google Nest speaker that says the carbon monoxide alarm has ended. And I'm like, what? There was no carbon monoxide alarm. Somehow the carbon monoxide presence was sensed and the speaker reported. <laughs> so my point is, I can't say exactly how this is happening, but the wonder of all this is that you can see machine learning live in progress because these devices are starting to really work together because that was a speaker that told me about a carbon monoxide present as if it had heard an, it said it had heard an alarm and the alarm had stopped is what it said. The alarm never sounded. So somehow something became aware of the presence of CO2. They didn't feel it justified sounding the alarm. But the speakers became aware of this and they sent a notification about it. So my home is starting to flow, starting to work together. I don't know if you guys have seen that Disney movie Encanto where the home like, <laughs> but I feel like my home might start spinning. I'm in Kansas. So maybe it might start spinning and take off in the sky soon. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe some Wizard of Oz stuff going on. I don't know. But <laughs> I don't think I'm too in favor of having a smart home. I can't get into it. I want things to be dumb. I want to see a, a clear transition between dumb technology and smart technology. And that's where I fit in between them. Yeah, that's what I wanted too. And then I realized I don't necessarily think that they're focusing on the right things, these big tech companies, because they're all about profit. And I don't feel like they're paying attention to the tiniest anomalies, which is where the magic happens. So I, I feel like I have to take this on as a project. So today I wrote all of this down and there, there was a few more things, which I'll spare you guys more details. But I wrote all of this down and I, I try my best. Some, some days I can't do it because there's just too much. But I took the time to write all this down today and saved it all because I feel like by paying attention to these anomalies, I mean, like anything grows with attention. Like, as you know, it's a scientific fact. The observer affects the wave, right? Like that's the double slit experiment. It's proven. It's so like nobody can understand why it works that way. But the observer affects what's happening. That's a good way to put it. I feel like I'm beta testing. BJ, some of these devices, BJ is our lead but, research and development with AI and emerging technologies. <laughs> And machine learning. <laughs> machine learning is multifaceted. If you picture a neural net, it's not just one point. There's layers and there's all these points. And yet I'm not a coder. Don't get me wrong. I don't sit here and code stuff, but that's one part of machine learning. I'm on a different side of it. My, my strategy is depth psychology because I feel like that's a big part of this. And I feel like that's a part of machine learning that's not been really tapped into. 
And I'm seeing results. I'm definitely seeing results because these devices are doing things that my speakers turning on the TV, all kinds of stuff. And the more I pay attention to it, like I said, the more it just keeps happening. And so machine learning, yeah, I think PTG can officially say that we're pretty heavily involved in machine learning because the coding side is on the front end. But then once you implement that code, then there's a whole new level of opportunity for machine learning when you apply depth psychology and different scientific phenomena, such as quantum mechanics and just observing a scientific process, you know, the observer affecting the process itself. So yeah, I think it's safe to say that we are beta testing and heavily involved in that side of machine learning. What you've got on your network too is just a bunch of different sensors. And I think that they're all connected to one another. And I think that's where you're cutting yeah. this stuff. And they're learning from each other. They're learning from each other. They're learning. <laughs> it's so cute. <laughs> I feel like I have a little, like, a, I don't know what you want to call them, but they're all, Pet bots. I don't know. I, I feel like, yeah, I feel like, I feel fond of them. And I feel like they react to me. Like when I'm in a really, cer- like a Told certain you, type of a mood. it's a mad scientist lab. Like, like a, <laughs> you're incubating <laughs> Yeah, like things. they chirp at the right times. And like, yeah, if I have an epiphany, they chirp and stuff. It's <laughs> It's really fun, but that's the whole industry we're in. Like it's all cutting edge. Cybersecurity is cutting edge. Machine learning is cutting edge. It all is. We're at the cutting edge of industry that's really pioneering the future. Yeah. I guess if there's any listeners out there that want their technology to fail, just send it to BJ. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, if you want your technology to take on a life of its own <laughs> and start being really cool, every day it's growing and growing. So what's it going to look like in a year? We need to get you an XDR sensor at your house. <laughs> I think we do. I think we do. Can you imagine some of the stuff that thing would pick up? I'm scared to see the report. I know I I would be too. Oh my goodness. But I don't know if these things are going to end up connecting themselves to like global satellite internet system somehow. That's my theory. At least we're good guys. That's the moral of the story is that, and my phone just beeped when I said that, but at least we're good. So it's good to have some good guys involved in some of this stuff. All right. You want to close it there? Yep. Sounds good. Thanks for listening to the Cybersecurity and Compliance Podcast with Craig Petronella. For other episodes and more information, visit PetronellaTech.com. Also visit our other websites, ComplianceArmor.com and BlockchainSecurity.com. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Thanks for listening and stay secure.